All right. Psalm number 51. We're moving forward. Slowly but surely. Psalm number 51. You remember last week what we discussed was David comes to God with crying, with confession for cleansing. And I know that we, uh, that Keaton read uh, verses 9 through 17, but I want to backtrack just a little bit. And I want you to notice, we're going to get to those verses, but I want to draw something out that's very important. It's built on what we read. Basically, this is the context of the passage that we just uh, had public reading of, and I want to draw your attention to this phrase. Where David says, hyssop, hyssop. Verse 7, he said, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. What is this hyssop? It's probably a pretty good question to ask. I like to ask questions whenever I study the Bible. Sometimes I ask a question and I look at myself and say, I don't know. Because I don't. And then my job is to find out. Hyssop was a small plant frequently found growing in crevices of stone walls as Solomon observed in 1 Kings 4 in verse 33. Because of the shape and structure of this small plant, it was used as a brush. <clears throat> in the ceremonies of the temple in ancient Israel, <clears throat> hyssop was used to sprinkle the blood. The first time hyssop is mentioned in the Bible is at the Passover when the Jews were leaving the land of Egypt. <clears throat> the Bible said in Exodus 12 and verse 22, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. Exodus 12, 22. When the angel of death saw the blood, he passed over the Jewish households and the firstborn in those homes did not die. After that, we are told how hyssop was used to sprinkle blood on one who had been healed of some infectious skin disease in an act of ceremonial cleansing. Leviticus 14, verses 4 and 6. Also, it was used in a similar ceremony to cleanse one who had defiled himself by touching a dead body. Numbers 19 and verse 18. The book of Hebrews... Hebrews chapter 9 verses 19 through 22 are very informative and indicate that hyssop was used in the enacting of the covenant in Moses' day. We talked about this uh, Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study a little bit. Uh, we had someone ask a question about obedience of the Jewish people under the Old Testament. And so this is actually sort of piggybacking on that same thing. I want to read for you number or excuse me Hebrews chapter 9 verses 19 through 22. 
The Bible said when Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So somebody says, what does this have to do with our sermon and our teaching and what we're learning in Psalm 51? Well, it has everything to do with it because David says in Psalm 51 and verse 7, that God needed to purge him with hyssop in order that he would be made clean. And in almost every mention of this hyssop herb, this hyssop plant is associated with blood. So you have hyssop being used as a brush, as an applicator for the blood of the ceremonial offering under the Old Testament uh, Levitical system. And essentially what the what David is doing is he said that in order for me to truly get clean in order for me to have my sins wiped and washed away I need a hyssop root that has been dipped in blood and what David is saying is the only way I have a shot in the dark a ghost of a chance of being right with God is through the shed blood of this offering See, this is a very fascinating thing because blood is one of the most staining things. You ever gotten blood on a pair of trousers or blood on a nice sweater? It's extremely difficult to wash out. See, today we just have hydrogen peroxide. You got the Tide pen. But back in the day, they didn't have access to things like that. And blood stains, and blood usually, once it gets in a garment, it's very difficult for blood to be removed. And the very thing that stains is the very thing that God uses to wash us clean. This is a sort of a paradox, isn't it? How in the world is it possible for blood to wash us clean? Well... In the book of Leviticus, God says very clearly that life is in the blood. And think about that. And what does this mean? This means that from the very early stages in the beginning times of the Jewish uh, ceremonial system, of the religion, if you want to call it that way, that God established amongst his people in the Old Testament, that God was teaching that in order for their sins to be made clean, for them to be washed white as snow, in order for that process to happen, God requires the lifeblood of an innocent offering to make up for the sins of the sinner. God requires the life of that which is innocent to atone, to cover, to wash away the guilt and the sins of those of us like David and you and I who are guilty. Now, under the Old Testament, those uh, sacrifices and those offerings 
are pictured in the ceremonial system of the Jewish people. Uh, offering the lamb as a burnt offering, offering the goat or the bullock. Uh, and Leviticus chapters 1 through 5, God outlines the major offerings of the Jewish people. But here in the New Testament, we have a single offering. Once and for all, there's no more sacrificial system. The Lamb of God has been offered on the cross of Calvary once and for all for the sins of humanity. And it is through faith and it's through trust in what God says He did for us in and through His Son, Jesus Christ, that we have access that we have uh, the capability to have our sins expiated, washed away, covered, atoned for, etc., etc., etc. And this is important because David, when he comes to God in confession seeking forgiveness, his plea is the blood. He's asking for the blood of the offering to cover his sins. And brothers and sisters in Christ, anytime we come to God to seek our own forgiveness for something that we have said or done or thought and we're convicted about that, that is exactly the same plea that we make to God. It's the plea of the blood of God's own son, the sacrifice of Christ, which makes us right and holy in the eyes of God. And this is important because the first half of the psalm deals with the need and the path to forgiveness. Yeah, boy, isn't that a wonderful thing that God wants to forgive us. Remember also that David begins by evoking the three main characteristics of God in, in the way that God relates to sinners like us. David in the first two verses says that God is a God of mercy, steadfast love, and compassion. That's the foundation for God's dealings with sinners like us. But what do verses 10 through 19 teach us? And this is an interesting thing. And this is where the sermon really picks up or the teaching in this psalm this morning. It's not just forgiveness that David needs. Forgiveness is wonderful. Forgiveness is precious. And in fact, it was the forgiveness of a sinful human race that caused the Son of God to come and live a sinless life, suffer, bleed, and die on the cross of Calvary and be resurrected again three days later. It was for our forgiveness that Christ came. But that's not the only reason why he came. And David knows something about himself. And David's a very intuitive man. David understands it's not just forgiveness that he needs. David comes to understand in the first few verses of this great psalm, he says, I want you to notice with me in verse number 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David knows that his sinful actions, his sinful deeds have arisen out of a sinful heart. In other words, David sins because he is a sinner. Sin is not just a verb. Sin is a noun. We do what we do as fallen people because we are what we are. And David is aware of this. 
This painful reality that all of us have to face in our Christian lives before God. David is aware that he does what he does because he is what he is. And so what David does is he comes to God asking for help that God would create something in him. Because David doesn't want to make the same mistakes that he made before. This second half of Psalm 51 has one great theme. And if you put the two themes of Psalm 51 together, the first part of Psalm 51 deals with pardon. But pardon is not all David needs. David also needs purification. He needs pardon, forgiveness, but he also needs a new, renewed heart before God. See, it's one thing for me to be forgiven for something I've done. But if God doesn't do something in me, if God doesn't change me fundamentally, the vicious cycle of my bad behavior and my bad thoughts and my evil heart will continue on and on and on and on indefinitely. David knows that the only hope he has, remember the backdrop and the history of this text, is that David was guilty of, a, of adultery and murder. And David acknowledges in this great psalm that he needs the two great things that only God can provide, and that's pardon for what he's done, but he also needs to be purified so he doesn't do what he did before. And this is the great, one of the great themes of the Bible as a whole, isn't it? We need God to do something miraculous and supernatural in us. We're going to talk about this this morning. We need God not just to forgive us, but we need God to give us a brand new heart. Let us come to God this morning seeking the two things which we need the most, pardon and purification. We are all sinners like David in both our deed and in our nature. First, we need to be cleansed from our sins, but then we need God to create a clean heart in us. The outline this morning is simple. We'll probably not get through it all. Number one, a pure heart, verses 10 through 12. Number two, a promise in verses 13 through 17. And thirdly, a prayer in verses 18 and 19. A pure heart, a promise, and a prayer. Let's look at verses 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David was not content with mere forgiveness, but rather he asked something, he asked God to do something that only God can do. He asked God to change his heart so he does not sin against God like he did before. And remember the emphasis in this psalm on threes. David asked God in these verses to do three things. Number one, he asked God to create a pure heart. Number two, he says, Lord, do not cast me away. And number three, he says, restore the joy of your salvation. 
Create in me a pure heart. This is a profound request. This word used here for create. Do you see it there at the beginning of verse 10? Create in me a clean heart, O God. This is the same exact word that we have in the Genesis narrative. This is the word for create that God uses, that Moses uses in the first chapter of the book of Genesis. This is curious. What does this mean? Well, what this means is that when God created the heavens and the earth, that God's word spoke and out of nothing, all things, time and space, matter, all that we know in our physical universe was created ex nihilio. That's just a fancy word that means out of nothing. This is what sets our God apart from anybody else or any other gods in the universe is that our God, when he created, he created ex nihilio. That means out of nothing. Human beings can create, but we do not create ex nihilio. None of us can create something out of nothing. Even if we create an atom bomb, may God have mercy on us, we're still using the matter and the particles which God himself created in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 in order to be able to create. Even human beings in the image of God, made in the image of God, we do not have the capability to create out of nothing like God does. And that is what makes our God so profound and so different than anybody else, any other being in heaven or on earth, is that God creates out of nothing. The idea that God creates out of nothing is a very, very unique idea. It's a power and it is a privilege that belongs to God and God alone. And what, does this, what bearing does this have now on the text before us? I'm glad you asked. Three times over in Genesis chapter 1, you have this same word in the Hebrew language for create being used. In Genesis 1.1, God creates the heavens and the earth out of nothing. In Genesis 1.21, God creates self-conscious life. That's the animal kingdom. All that the microbes and bacterias and amoebas and all the way up to advanced life forms and so forth. God creates self-conscious life ex nihilio out of nothing in Genesis 1.21. But then in Genesis 1.27, God creates God-conscious life. Not all life is God-conscious like human beings are. And God creates Adam and Eve essentially out of nothing. He uses the dust of the earth, but the dust of the earth was created, ex nihilio, out of nothing. This is the same exact word that David uses in Psalm 51 where he says, Create in me a clean, pure heart, O God. David comes to the place where he realizes that his heart... That his life, that his soul is so dark, it's so corrupted that there's nothing good in and of himself. That David needs God to create something pure and something precious and something holy out of nothing. 
He views himself as so fallen and so sinful and so evil and so wicked before God that he needs God to create a clean heart. How? Out of nothing. Out of the deadness, out of the darkness, out of the blackness and the wickedness of human nature, God calls forth life from death. This is how David will be kept from doing the things that he used to do. This is how we are kept and delivered and given victory over doing the things in our lives that we know God doesn't want us to be doing. It's out of a clean heart that God alone can create. And he does that not by using some kind of goodness in you and I. There is no divine spark in us there's only death and destruction and darkness and it's out of that that God creates a clean heart David said Lord I believe that you are the creator I'm asking you to be my recreator <laughs> what is the greater work Creation out of nothing or recreation out of sin? Think about that. Think about creation out of nothing. That's profound and precious and wonderful and otherworldly in and of its own self. To even think that God has the capability to do something like that. But then to know that God can take a ruined heart, blackened with the darkness of sin and corruption... And God the Creator is now God the Re-Creator. I submit to you that recreation is a greater work than creation. It took God seven days or six days and He rested on one to create all that we know. But it's taken God thousands and thousands of years to recreate humanity in their sinfulness. Paul alludes to this truth in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, when he says, quote, that nothing good lives in me, that is, my sinful nature. David knows that if he's going to get victory over his sin and sins, he needs God to create a clean heart out of nothing, from nothing, because there is nothing good in David apart from God himself. What is our sin nature like? Well, it is like tainted water. You can't do anything with it. It has bacteria and amoebas, make you sick, what we need is to recreate the water, to clean it, to make it new. If David is going to have victory over sin, he needs God to start over from the beginning and recreate his heart. I always like Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. 
I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. How do we live for God? It's a new heart, a new life. It's not a new leaf that we need. It's a new life. There's a big difference between turning over a new leaf and receiving a new life, a new heart, something that's otherworldly, something that doesn't originate with us, something that has been brought forth out of darkness and deadness and blackness and sin that has been made righteous and holy before God. When was the last time that we, pr that we prayed, Lord, create a pure heart in me out of nothing? That is the prayer, isn't it? How will you know when someone's repentance is real? It's a good question. There's lots of people who say that they believe the gospel. And lots of people who are very religious outwardly even. But how will you know that it's real? Well, when it looks like Psalm 51. <laughs> when someone begins to cry out to God and talk this way. This is when it's real in your life, in mine, and those around us. Perhaps one reason why we don't pray this way is because we have a low view of our sin. We simply don't view ourselves as sinners. And that's simply not the case. And if we view ourselves as sinners, we certainly don't view ourselves as sinners who to the degree need God to recreate a brand new heart in us. When we look at ourselves, we see nothing good. That is in me in my flesh dwells no good thing in my sin nature, St. Paul said. We are both inwardly and outwardly corrupted and we need God to create and recreate a brand new heart and life in us. The second thing David asked God to do in verse 11, look at it. He said, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. This caused a lot of ruckus over the years. There's several different views. I normally don't go into all the various views that people hold about this. But just know that when you start talking to Bible teachers and so forth, they all kind of have a lean on it. And there are some people, and uh, I don't necessarily believe this, but there are some Bible teachers that believe that the Christians in the Old Testament, that they did not have the Holy Spirit like what we have the Holy Spirit now. And there might be some truth to that. I would be very careful with the way that I worded that, but I don't think that that's what David is saying. It's not that the saints of God in the Old Testament had the Spirit come on them and leave. And that the Spirit in the New Testament comes into the believer and stays. And so we have the sort of better covenant now. I don't think that's what David is praying at all. I think the context of this passage suggests something far different than that. The context of the passage is David is concerned that he's going to fall back into his sin. David knows that if God doesn't do something supernatural and miraculous in him, like he created heaven and earth out of nothing, that David's going to fall right back into the rut. David's going to blow it. He's going to do things that he shouldn't be doing. 
So although David believes that God is able to recreate his sinful heart out of nothingness, David does not want to fall away from God again. In other words, David is acknowledging in verse 11 that he cannot live for God unless he has the Holy Spirit helping him. <laughs> I like that. You know why? Because I'm the same way. <laughs> if it was not for God, the Holy Spirit, living inside me, sustaining me, nourishing me, strengthening me from the inside, making me into somebody that I could never be on my own, I would be doing the exact same things to the degree I was doing them in my past. But that's not true about me anymore. Why? Because I have the Holy Spirit. And if you take the Holy Spirit away from me, you've taken everything away from me, David said. Lord, draw me so close to you. Bring me into such communion and union with you, Lord. Do not take your presence away from me. If you, if you leave me, Lord, I'm going to sin again. I'm going to blow it. And this is the answer, isn't it? To why many people make a profession of faith and they fall back into their sin. I'm no one to judge. God is the judge. But I can tell you this much. If they've got the Holy Spirit living inside them, enabling them, empowering them, encouraging them to keep progressing forward and growing in their love and relationship with God, they won't fall back. What is repentance? This is an interesting question. Because traditionally, and you know, if you thought this, you're not altogether wrong. But we treat repentance like it's turning from sin, don't we? Sort of getting to the heart of the matter now. Well, repentance is turning from sin, but that's secondary. Repentance is primarily turning to God. And when I turn to God with my whole heart, my whole life, what will I be turning from? My sin. If I make turning from sin the primary element of what it means to repent, then what I've turned repentance into is a dead work. Because I cannot turn from sin on my own. I'm corrupted to the degree that even when the seeds joined and my mother's womb informed me as a living, breathing person on planet earth, that that process was conceived in sin, David said in verse 5. And so what I need is to not stop sinning, although I need to stop sinning. What I need is to turn to God who creates in me a pure heart and puts the Holy Spirit in me and keeps me from sinning. There's a big difference between turning from sin and turning to God. If someone has truly turned to God, they will turn from their sin. You say, is there a difference? It sounds like you're splitting hairs. Well, it's only life and death. It's only light and darkness. Were the Pharisees turning from their sins? Absolutely they were. But guess what? They had God in the flesh living right there before them, and they wouldn't turn to Him. So their repentance was not real. Hmm. Cast me not away. 
David said, I need the Holy Spirit to abide with me every moment of every day so I can overcome my temptations and live for God with my whole heart. Guess who else needs that? Me. Guess who else needs that? You. <laughs> Don't we? This is a wonderful prayer to pray. It's not that he actually believed that God would take the Holy Spirit from him. It's that he actually believed that if God took the Holy Spirit from him, he would go back to doing what he did, i.e. adultery and murder. I can remember whenever I got right with God, I was scared to death that I would go back to my old life. But for all these many years now, I've had the Holy Spirit keeping me, sustaining me. It doesn't mean that I don't blow it. I do just ask my wife. <laughs> She'll tell you. But that somebody, there's something in me that's greater than my sin. Because where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. I'd like to quote the great Bible teacher, J.J. Uh, Stewart Perrone. He writes along these lines when he explains, quote, It is the cry of one who knows, as he never knew before, the weakness of his own nature and the strength of temptation and the need for divine help. End quote. Alexander McLaren, great Scottish minister years ago, says, quote, The psalmist is recoiling from what he knows only too well to be the consequence of an unclean heart. That is separation from God, end quote. Are we keenly aware of our need for God the Holy Spirit to sustain us in our relationship with Him and the world around us daily, moment by moment? Trusting God. Lord, you've given me the Holy Spirit. You've sealed me to the day of promise. You live inside me, Lord, and I believe that you're going to keep me from doing the things I know I shouldn't be doing. Wow. He said in verse 12, restore the joy of your salvation. He didn't say restore the joy of my salvation. That's a misquotation. Look at verse number 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Not of my salvation. <laughs> What does he mean? Well, he's talking in the same terms that he's been talking this whole time. Salvation doesn't begin with me. I can't save myself. Salvation belongs to God. Ask Jonah. He'll tell you all about it. <laughs> you remember what he said when he was in the belly of the great fish? Salvation is of the Lord. It's salvation that belongs to God that David needs. After we repent, are cleansed, we confess, and we receive our new heart and our new life, you can expect the joy of salvation to return. David looks back over his shoulder and he remembers what it's like to have the joy of the Lord, to walk with God in communion. Can you imagine the horror of what Adam and Eve experienced after they blew it so bad as they did in the garden? That communion is what they lost. What did they lose when they partook of the forbidden fruit and disobeyed the command of God and sinned against the Lord and incurred death and wrath upon themselves? They lost God. 
What do we lose whenever we continue and willfully continue in our sins? We lose the presence of God, the sense of God's presence. This is one of the things that terrified Job so deeply. He was afraid that God had forsook him. The orphan cry of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't ever forget, is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is, the most, <clears throat> this is the most horrifying feeling that a saint, a Christian, a child of God can feel this side of eternity. That God's joy, the joy of God, the presence of God has left them because of something that they've done. But it's not true. No, it's not true. In Hebrews chapter 13, the strongest statement found anywhere in the Bible, five times negated, the writer of Hebrews says, I will never, 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 never leave you or forsake you. Five times over, the word no is found in the Greek Bible. It's the strongest statement found anywhere in the entire Bible. Five times God says he will not leave you nor forsake you. But when we allow sin in our lives and we allow ourselves to do and say things that we know God doesn't want us to do and we don't get that right with him, the sense of God's presence is withdrawn from us. The sense of God's presence is withdrawn from us. May God have mercy. All right. The fact, now this is interesting. The fact that the psalmist prays for so many things in verses 7 through 12 indicates how much he knew he had lost when he plunged himself into sin. What do we lose? We lose everything. But God wants to restore us. Now, last point, a promise to teach others in verses 13 through 17. Look at what David says. He said, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return unto you. Notice also verse 14, he said, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. There's three things that David says that he wants to teach. You have three more things, don't you? Three, three, three. I don't know why God is doing this, but hey, I just follow along with it. Three things. He said the ways of God. He said God's righteousness. And then he said how to praise God. These are three very important elements that we need to be teaching others. Did it ever occur to you that God allowed what he allowed in the life of David so that David could be a teacher? I often asked, Lord, why did you wait so long in my life to save me from all the evil, wicked things I'd done whenever I was young? And this verse answers it. So I could be a teacher. In other words, if God can save and restore me, he can save and restore anybody. And that's what David is saying. If God can pardon and forgive and remove my transgressions after I have blown it royally, I've murdered, I premeditated, I tried to cover it up. This was a capital offense, murder in the first degree. He was guilty of not one but two sins and crimes under Old Testament law that demanded his execution. And God forgives him 
pardons him, restores him, and he makes David a teacher. What God is there like this? How is this even possible? That God takes sinners and transforms them, and he makes them teachers of God's ways, of God's righteousness, of God's praise? In other words, if I wouldn't have done the things I did whenever I was young and in my sin, I probably would not be here today teaching you. Isn't that amazing how God is? We think it was all just a horrible thing. And it was. But God is going to use it. He wants to use it in your life and in mine.